1: What really goes on in the jury room? We all know that the Scott Peterson trial is over. Actually, the first day of the uh, Scott Peterson trial was June 1, 2004. But the impact upon the jurors, and in a sense upon our society, lives on. The impact upon the jurors and the journalists who covered it is currently living on in a new book called We the Jury. It's a book put out by Phoenix Books. And my guests today are all um, uh, involved in this book. The co-authors of the book are award-winning journalists Frank Swertlow and Lyndon Sandler, and um, also the, the um, jurors who took part in the book. Um, one of them is with us today, Mike Belmissieri, juror number four. Now... Um, before you think, oh, the Scott Peterson trial, I i watched it enough, heard it enough, read about it enough when it was going on. I don't need to hear any more about it. Let me tell you, as one who is experienced with trials as an expert witness, a psychiatric expert witness, what you saw and heard and read uh, at the time of the trial is just the tip of the iceberg and most often a misinformed tip because what really goes on behind the scenes of a trial is a lot more complex than the sound bites or even the interviews that you see or hear or read in the media. And it's very hard to get at, um, particularly to get at the secrets of what goes on in the jury room, but it's um, even hard to get a sense of the truth of the trial and, and what it makes me think of is the Jenny Jones murder trial that I was a psychiatric expert in. And I would go home at night and look at the television or I'd read the papers and I'd think, Are, were these people at the same trial that I was? Because, um, well, at that time I was the defense psychiatrist for Jonathan Schmitz, um, the man who was accused of killing another guest on the Jenny Jones show. And I knew the uh, case inside and out, and that what was being reported was not accurate, and certainly was not the whole story. So, this book is not anything that you have seen or heard or read before, and uh, as my guests are about to tell you. So let me introduce uh, them again. Um, With me now are co-authors Frank Fortlow and Lyndon Stambler, award-winning journalists, and they won some of the awards that they won were those for their coverage of the Scott Peterson trial. And Mike messieri was one of the seven jurors who have come forth uh, to contribute to this book. So welcome to all of you.
2: Thank you.
3: Thank you. Thank you.
1: <laughs> Why don't I start um, with Lyndon Stambler, since uh, he is only going to be able to be with us for about half of the show, because ironically enough... He himself is on a lunch break from jury duty. Yes. <laughs> which he could not have foreseen when he was writing this book. No. <laughs> I mean in a sense we could all foresee it. We're supposed to all be take part on a jury at some time in our lifetime at least once. But um but I suppose it's, it's very ironic that it's coinciding with the release of this book.
2: Right. <laughs> I, I, I wish um in some ways, I had had the experience before uh, working on the book, but um, it does give me new insight into what um, the jurors went through when they were serving on the Peterson case.
1: Yes, and I know you're not allowed um, to to talk about, certainly, you're at the current trial that you're on the jury for, but um, um, why don't you tell us about your perspective, your involvement in the Scott Peterson tri- trial, and what you left feeling passionate about that made you want to write this book?
2: Okay, well, um, I, I covered the trial from beginning to end along with Frank um, in 2004. And you, you saw the jury. You couldn't obviously talk to them until after the final um, decision in, in the penalty phase. And while, while you were sitting there, there were, there were a lot of journalists, including uh, me, who, who were wondering what was going on Behind the scenes, what were they? You know, how did they reach these decisions? Um, what? What? Why did, for example, um, some of the jurors get dismissed? I mean, there were a lot of unanswered questions. I mean, some of it came out in dribs and drabs afterwards. But uh, we really wanted to put together the story from beginning to end and put it into some context and and allow the, I mean, the jurors to have a say and, and get their point across in terms of. The experience, what they went through, and how they arrived at the decisions that they did.
1: You know, you mention uh and so that's why you wanted to give, to give them a voice through this book.
2: Right. And and I think they wanted to um wanted a voice as yes. well. I'm I'm sure they did.
1: Yes. Um you know, you mentioned the um the issue of the some of the jurors being dismissed and um that is one of the things that really intrigued me, especially uh, why the original foreman, um, Greg Jackson, who was a doctor and a lawyer, a little bit of an overachiever there, <laughs> and obviously obsessive-compulsive, which you kind of have to be to become either a doctor or a lawyer, uh, and took a whole bunch of notes that um, kind of uh, got the jury annoyed. I guess I should be asking... Um, Uh, Mike about this as well, but why why don't you, um, Lyndon, why don't you give us your perspective? Okay,
2: well, he started out as an alternate juror. Um, he, he, when, uh, the first juror number five was dismissed, Justin Falconer, uh, he replaced him. This was only three weeks into the trial. So he was juror number five when they went into deliberations, and since he was the doctor and the lawyer, and since he had filled 19 notebooks cover to cover, Um, the jurors looked at at him as a person who could help uh, guide them in the deliberations process. So he was immediately nominated and selected as the foreman. And I I guess I should let Mike um, take it from there.
3: Yes. Sure. Um, Well, you know, Lyndon and and Frank have had had the... uh, the insight that many haven't had by talking to us on this. So you you you, you put it right up to now, and I will take it from here. Uh, yes, we did uh, we did elect Greg uh, uh, to be the foreman because we we thought he had uh, ability to uh, to lead us on to the to the uh, deliberations toward the verdict. Um, after all, it, it it just seemed like a common sense. Or an attorney and he had 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 good understanding of uh, of the law, but he he we find, quickly found out as a jury that you know law takes various. Uh, Various, uh, specialty fields and, and he was not, uh, a, a lawyer from a criminal standpoint or, or a trial lawyer. Uh, so, you know, there, there, there's a difference. At any rate, uh, just a delightful guy. Uh, he, um... he, uh, stepped up to the plate and began, the, began to lead us in the deliberations. But at, 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 at a point in time, it became to where we were, we were almost like deadlocked because his recollection uh, was, was not as, uh, as, as good as his note taking. Uh, he had volumes of, uh, of notes, but, uh, I, I, I kind of got the feeling he just didn't know what they said. And, um, there was a lot of debate over issues that were clearly, I mean, clearly established as, as, as issues that were testified to, and uh, his his recollection contradicted the recollection of twelve who who, who actually had referred to their notes naturally uh, on, on various items of testimony. So um, you know, it just um, it just became a a bit of a, a point where we felt that. Um, that, that, that Greg, or else as we called him D-Day, uh, could could better serve the process by stepping down and and, and not uh, facilitating the uh, the deliberations. Uh, the, the, the
1: and he uh, must not have taken too kindly to that.
3: Well, you know, you know, Greg, as as you so well put it. Greg is an achiever. He's a doctor. He's a lawyer. And then we had people challenging him, especially John Ganasso, who's just a blue collar guy. He works in a parking lot. I mean, not nearly as educated as Greg. And I think that Greg did take um, take take umbrage to that. And uh, consequently, um, I think that's when the uh, the issue of uh, Greg uh, requesting and uh, requesting removal from the jury took place. Um, we didn't. Uh, it's perceived by some we didn't kick Greg off. You know, we were more than ha- we were disappointed that Greg took the the position he took, and it was uh, a a lot of a uh, some of the uh, specifically one of the female jurors told him that uh, she was disappointed because she expected he was uh, she felt that he was. Uh, acting in a less than a manly manner uh, that that she would expect him to 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 act based on the fact that he was a male, okay? And so she was very disappointed. I was disappointed because I had a lot of respect for Greg, and um, again, he's he's he's, he's, a, he's a nice gentleman. But it got to the point where either the pressure was too great or or or, or his ego was too large. I don't know which. And I mean, I don't want to get into that. Whatever the case, Greg wanted out, and. Um, if for whatever reason he 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 wanted up who knows he he, he figured a way to get off all he did he did he did well he he again, greg's a smart man greg's a very smart man, and uh he just couldn't bring himself to continue to be on the jury under the under the circumstances. there were no threats the 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 the, the jury we i was i was really pleased with the amount of respect that we showed one another i mean the deliberations were heated as they should be in such a uh, an important trial. Oh but yeah. They 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 didn't get out of hand. Nobody was disrespectful. Greg just decided it was time to leave and he went down and basically came up with a with an excuse. And hold it right
1: there because we need to take a break and we'll leave the leave it at this cliffhanger. <laughs> what the excuse was. So, we do need to take a break. We'll be back. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about the new book just released, We the Jury, Deciding the Scott Peterson case. So stay tuned.
4: The Internet's premier talk radio station, VoiceAmerica.com.
0: What does it
5: take to get your business online? How do you leverage the internet to attract more clients, expand your network, and make more money? What are the tools you need to master? It's not enough to know the tools. You need to build a solid foundation and actually implement systems that automate your business as much as possible. On Blogging and Beyond with Denise Wakeman and Patsy Krakoff, the Blog Squad, learn about new tools that are easy and essential to use in order to grow your business online. Get strategies, tactics, and tips that Work if you implement them. Denise and Patsy interview internet marketing experts plus coach a client in real time through the steps designed to market a real product or service. Blogging and Beyond with Denise Wakeman and Patsy Krakoff broadcasts each Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Blogging and Beyond leverage the internet to attract, sell, and profit online
1: We're talking today about American justice, what really goes on in the jury room, particularly the jury room of the Scott Peterson trial. My guests today are co-authors Frank Swertlow and Lyndon Stambler, and juror number four, Mike Belmissieri. Um, We were talking before the break about the ousting or or, um, uh, (laughs) voluntary (laughs) um, uh, leaving of Greg Jackson, the doctor, lawyer, foreman. And you were about to tell us, Mike, how he managed to get off when things got hot.
3: Well, all he did was go to the judge. When when there was a he he concocted some sort of um, issue regarding uh, misconduct of him, and he he premised that on on a previous uh, dismissal of Fran Gorman. Uh, Fran Gorman, as you may recall, if you if you. If you faith has tried was was dismissed by judge jaluki because she did some independent research on the internet Fran came to us and told us that she had gone on the internet and done this and so she was excused Mm -hmm. um... the uh... greg uh... had uh... went to the judge and reported uh, his indiscretion as having been having been one in which he discussed issues involving Deliberation outside the deliberation room with Steve Cardosi, who we call Cap, who just happened to be Greg's replacement as the foreman. Hmm. And now, when, when 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 he did this, he he made the announcement: uh, "I've uh, committed an indiscretion that uh, I, I have to report to the judge that has has um, has uh, had a impact on my." Um, feelings regarding the case, and then it has an impact on whether I've decided Scott is innocent or guilty. Mm. And I have to report this. Well, we asked him who it was because we all became very concerned. Well, none of us could recall having discussed that case outside the deliberation room, and he noted that he had discussed it with with Steve on the bus en route to the hotel where we were sequestered. Um, that was a clear uh, violation of the admonishments that the, the judge had given us we were not to discuss anything about the case outside that jury room so even if it was with another juror so um you know i don't you know i i, I, I don't know how exactly um he felt that that, that affected him but uh he did, and so he reported to the judge, and then he made a statement. I understand, although none of us were there in the room. I, I've since read this uh, that he made a statement that he did not know whether he can make the fair decision, the right decision, or a decision that would make the right book. And he implied that he felt that he was in a hostile environment. Yet he said that we were deliberating and doing very well. Um, I, I don't know. I, I, you know. But
1: how come Steve didn't get um, dismissed? If that's well, Steve, well, you know,
3: in, in these in these matters, in these matters, the judge is the person who rules on it with with the attorneys present and even the accused.
2: Um, well, actually, the the foreman um, was called into the judge's chambers, and basically, the previous foreman told the judge that the deliberations were going on fine were were peaceful and and productive and as good as they, did, they had had ever been and then the new foreman came in and said basically the same thing. Yeah.
3: Yeah, exactly. And uh, you know, the, the you know, it was it was simply in in the judge's uh decision that 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 not be the case cuz you know, Steve really couldn't recall much about the discussion that allegedly took place. Uh-huh. And um you know, and, and 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 he also claimed that there was, was like a hostile environment. Which, again, as Lemon just said, he were they, they were going on fight. As a matter of fact, even during the point in time when he was being challenged, and and we challenged each other vigorously. I mean, after all, <laughs> we are deciding the fate of a man's life. This is an awesome responsibility, and so we naturally we didn't take it lightly. And so we would challenge each other uh, if if we disagreed with with one another's position.
1: But you know, let me since um let, let me just uh, interrupt because since Lyndon has to has to go back to his story trial. Um, what was the experience? I mean, how did this experience impact you? Uh, besides, you having won an award for it.
2: Um, covering the trial or writing the book?
1: Co- well, covering the trial.
2: Um, it was a, a grueling experience in some ways, and also as. Uh, I had covered other cases, but um, I don't think I had ever covered a death penalty case before. So covering a death penalty case, seeing, as, as Mike said, that is an awesome responsibility. Uh, I think all the jurors took it very seriously. And, and so the process of meeting with the jurors who actually made the decision, seeing how seriously they took it, it, it um, you know, it, rene- it renewed my faith in a lot of ways in the system. Uh, not that I had lost it, but but it, it just affirmed my faith in the system, and and also it it helped to tie up some some loose ends in my own mind, you know, because I had seen a lot of the evidence and a lot of the stuff that the jurors didn't see, because you know they they're restricted from seeing um, stuff that the judge doesn't allow into the into the case. So it was it was very um you know I was I was moved just by meeting the first time meeting with these jurors. I mean, seeing how united they were. I mean, they had an experience even even the co-authors can't really understand. I mean, you, they they shared this experience, and it was really moving to see that.
1: hmm Yes. I, I, and in a sense, um, I mean, I know in the book uh, you talk about how it was kind of like a prison, that the jurors were sort of in a prison kind of setting. Oh, yeah. Um, not being able to talk, not being able, you know, ser- being sequestered, et cetera. I mean, in a sense... It's almost like that for the people covering it as well.
2: Right. I mean, the, the jurors at one point were transported in a bus, a uh, county sheriff's bus that had shackles on the floor. I mean, think about that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then they were not allowed to talk about the case for months. We're not talking about a short period. We're talking about six months
1: Right. June and 1st. You, you agreed with the uh, the verdict, right?
2: Uh, yeah. 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 I, I believe that, that they came to the right verdict. And they and they came to came deliberated and came came to the decision that needed to be made. I don't think I, I mean some of them had to suffer after the fact when people would come up to them and say, "Do you really think he did it?" Hmm. You know, after they had had reached their verdict. I mean, you don't do that. It's as if um, you know it's a popularity contest or something. Mm-hmm. It's not. And and I think that really a lot of the jurors who went through this six month ordeal. Uh, Feel that that's really off-putting.
1: Yes, it could be, be, be decided asked, you know, just really so easily, you, you know. And here they spent six months uh, uh, tediously going over everything. Right,
7: right. Uh, it's Frank here. I just want yeah. to. I, I think I had never covered a trial before this. My mother's a lawyer. My father was a lawyer. My son's a lawyer. I even went to law school. I think I even had a cousin who was a lawyer and a doctor. Not <laughs> unlike our uh, departed foreman. And I have to say that I think that everyone who was covered this trial or participated in this trial in some fashion or other will be haunted yes. by what occurred. Yes. And I think we all have become victims of Scott Peterson. Yes. And I think the salute to, to Mike and, and, the, and the others is that you know, they, were, they were strangers. They were placed in a vortex of events. They had no idea that they were going to be placed in this situation. And I think the importance of a book like this is to tell jurors, you know, when, when you get jury duty calls, well, this is what can happen. And you ought to be prepared because, you know, these things will affect you. And this is, you know, how many, how many big murder trials do you really have? I mean, a lot of people kill people, sadly, but they don't have this kind of focus. And I, I don't think the jurors had a clue what was transpiring outside the courtroom. But we, in the courtroom, saw what was happening, and uh, you know listen when I reread my first chapter, it brings tears to my eyes mhm i mean when when I hear Rochelle call um Connor the little man it it really just it touches me the little man, the man who never was it's so it's so sad the heinousness, heinous heinousness of this crime so i think I think the the photographs i mean I think Mike. You were the one who held up two photographs. This is Lacey before Scott, and you saw that vibrant, you know, compelling smile that captured America for nearly for more than a year. And then you held up a picture of what was left. This is what was left. Mm, of, of. Mm, and, that's true. You know, and and it's like, you know, not to be too descriptive. It was like seeing a carcass on the sands of the God, desert with no arms. And, and the most, mm. and, you know, her baby looked, you know, jelly-like and E.T.-ish.
2: Mm.
7: And, you know, I, th- I, think, I think Sharon said it in one of the most compelling <clears throat> and heart-wrenching things, when she said, even in death, what you did to my daughter, that she will never be uh-huh. able to hold her baby in her arms.
3: Mm.
7: It was no, there were no arms. It was just horrifying. And people don't think about how horrifying it is. And, and if you sit as Mike did and, and the others and look at these pictures... Over and over again, and also weigh the fact that that the decision to take somebody's life is not done easily. And I think I think you know Tom Reno, the retired postman, went into a corner, kneeled down, and prayed before he came back with his decision for death. Hmm. That's 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 it's it, it, it's not it's just you can't make this stuff up. It's just this really affected people, and these people should be saluted for the work they did. But the other question of course is what would have happened if they came back and said Scott's innocent? What would the reaction would have been? Oh. And I and I think the truth is that they fair, they weighed this all the material that they had in front of them. There were no stealth jurors as Garagos liked to that's the defence attorney like to, you know, spin and so on and so forth. They weighed this and it wasn't one thing in the end. It was everything that pointed to one person with Scott, and unlike the Michael Jackson jury, that after, after the trial, m- not just after the trial, minutes after giving their verdict, they okay. said, "Well, you know, maybe, maybe he was, maybe he is a child molester, but he wasn't a child molester, you know." Then, and you know, these gentlemen and women have never t- ch- changed their minds.
2: And, they, and they you never want to it. serve on a jury and then go after the fact and have doubts about it. I don't think. I mean, um, so anyway, I, I must go. I have yes. to
1: go. Yes, <laughs> you have to go back to Good your luck, jury. Lyndon. Well, okay, thank you later. very much for joining Bye. us, Lyndon Stambler, one of the co-authors of *We the Jury*. You
3: know, Frank, you're right. You know, it it, it was it was hard, but you know, it, 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 it's fortunate that we have the system we have. Um, we did everything we could to give Scott a fair trial i mean he he stood before us the day we entered that courtroom. He was an innocent man six months later, after deliberation we We unanimously agreed he was no longer an innocent man. It took a long time to get there, and it took a lot of work and It was not easy on any of us you're right um, Tom wasn't the only one who was praying for guidance um It just, uh, yeah, it was not not an easy thing to do.
1: Well, you know, I remember where I was when I heard on the radio what the verdict was. And I must say, I was thrilled, um, and at the same time, I was really impressed with the courage of the jurors, because I thought it was the right verdict, but at the same time, I don't know, I guess uh, part of me wondered whether you all would have the courage to do that.
3: Well, it, it wasn't easy. And then, you know, I'll tell you, I, I I looked at Scott, and I looked at his family for six months, and I can understand why his family feels he's innocent. That's what they want to believe. And for their sake, I wish the God he was. But you know what? He isn't.
1: And when we come back, actually, I'd like to hear about that, why you think that the family thinks that he was innocent. Right now we need to take a break. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, and we'll be back with We the Jury.
4: The Internet's premier talk radio station, VoiceAmerica.com.
5: Ever wonder what are the favorite travel destinations of the Hollywood Jet Set? Where do celebrities like to go when they aren't walking the red carpet? Tune in to Traveris Celebrity Travel Talk with president of Trevera's David Manning, and Lisa O'Hurley, golf aficionado and wife of actor John O'Hurley. On Travera's Celebrity Travel Talk, David and Lisa talk with well-known actors, sports celebrities, and entertainment insiders to find out about their favorite travel destinations and what they recommend. On Trevera Celebrity Travel Talk, David and Lisa also offer a
0: At least 90% of sports success requires mental strength. And the greater the competitive level, the more critical it becomes to build that mental muscle. Tune into Championship Thinking every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time. Your host, Jim Myers, sports psychology coach, consultant, and author, offers practical, powerful, and positive mental game tools, tips, and techniques. Learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure, tension, and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance. Tune in and tune up your mental game with Championship Thinking every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time right here on America's Voice, Voice
4: America. Bringing you around the world right from your desktop. VoiceAmerica.com
6: Welcome back to Dr. Carroll's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. We're talking today about what really goes on in the jury room and American justice, particularly the Scott Peterson case. My guest joining me now... (laughs) Um, are Frank Swartlow, one of the co-authors of the new book, We the Jury, and one of the jurors, Mike Belmassieri, juror number four, also involved in contributing to this book. Now, before the break, Mike, you were saying um, that you could tell why or you knew why, uh, you believed why um, Scott's parents thought that he was innocent. Well,
3: being a parent... Being a parent, I think, plays a big part of that that feeling I have, because it, 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 it's very difficult, I would think, for a parent to see their child as the heinous type of of of, of person that Scott Peterson is. I mean, he's 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 evil, in my in, in my opinion. Uh, absent any other absent any other uh, evidence suggesting to to to, to, to the the, the other side so to speak he just is is not the kind of person i think that a parent would possibly a loving parent would possibly see their son as being mm-hmm. and there's no question in my mind that that Jackie and Lee Peterson absolutely love their son there's no question in my mind that his brothers and sisters love him that his his nieces and nephews love him because they see Scott as scott presents himself mm-hmm. scott is a chameleon
1: they don't see the dark side they right. don't
3: see the manipulator they don't see the evil that is in scott peterson and i say this absent any evidence that suggests otherwise i say this after having gone through six months of a trial after having listened to all testimony and evidence and after having seen that man for every day of every mm-hmm. second of a trial And, Frank, you had the
1: opportunity of meeting uh, Scott and his parents.
7: Well, you know, I I started on this case um, two days after Lacey went missing. So I saw Scott uh, sort of in motion. Uh, I talked to him a few times. He was at a breakfast table once. Um, I observed him moving around the media uh, compound in uh, in Modesto, uh, answering questions, being chased down the hallways, people yelling, Why did you kill her? Um, he was the coldest person I've actually ever God, yes. ever seen and I've got to tell you something he reminded me of one of those uh, PIO officers information officers in Vietnam who'd come out in front of the press every day and he would say we're winning the war the body count is up and believe it mm-hmm. and when you challenge that he would just continue the same old razzle dazzle but was, there was no truth to it but i got to tell you something the, the question that you raised about why his parents, you know, can't believe this. You know, I went down to his high school, hmm. um, his hometown. This is a guy who was the perfect kid. He didn't cheat at golf. He uh, showed up for practice on the golf team. This guy was on a golf team who had s- amongst some of the finest golfers in the United States, and. Uh, he was a good golfer but he wasn't a great golfer and all the team members said he showed up he practiced he was polite and he didn't cheat but he I can't remember much about him Hmm. he was a man who left a soft imprint in the sand and the flashiest thing he did was drive a Miata that's it there were no, there's no criminal records. There are no, no aberrations. He wasn't found drunk. I mean, there was an issue at uh, the, uni- I think it's the uni- University of Arizona, Arizona State, where, where he was on the, the golf team very briefly, that uh, got him kicked off. Um, that's about it. I mean, this is a guy. If, if, if no one's around in the middle of the night and there's a traffic light and it's red, he stops. So when you have a kid like that, I mean, he did everything that everybody else wanted him to do the problem was is what was deep inside of him and there is a dark side to him I mean I and mean, I think sex was the issue I mean you know when when his wife uh, is is passed away or not passed away is missing he goes out and gets himself the playboy channel and that wasn't hot enough so he got I think the spice channel I mean there were cauldrons bubbling up inside him and the fact is and I think Mike could probably said you know getting the spice channel and the playboy channel and and then you know, it says a lot. You know, she ain't coming back. Well, uh-huh. it, it, I, think, I think that there's nothing
3: wrong with doing those things in itself, but when we look at the bigger right. picture and we apply some common sense to this thing, which, you know, we, we soon find out that perhaps common sense isn't common, but we, we, we look at this thing and we say, well, wait a minute. This man has a missing pregnant wife with his firstborn child. And he is so calm and collected at times. It's just, wow, this guy's a rock. Then all of a sudden you find, well, his wife's missing, and he's on the phone talking to his lover, and he's in Paris. Mm-hmm. Wow. Still playing his, his, still executing his plan. Well, he was in Par-
7: He said he was in Paris,
3: right. but he was in Modesto. Right. Yeah.
7: He said he was in Brussels, yeah. but he was in Modesto. Yeah.
3: And he's executing his plan, and he's just cold. I mean, I mean he 's almost void of any emotion. he has a plan and he's he 's following it out now what he's about his childhood? What were you able to find out
1: about his relationship to his parents?
3: um Well, you know basically you know we only you know, we knew he was one of he was the one and only son of, of Jackie and Lee Peterson. He was raised in a home with, um, with uh, step siblings. Um, he was doted on. Um, he was just a real nice kid, very polite. Uh, everybody liked him. Um, he uh, he he did what was expected of him. Uh, he uh to to, to to the maximum uh his involvement in his school he he, uh, he went down uh, as part of his uh part of his community services for school and and did some um i think it was tutoring or whatever down in mexico like i can't recall right off but um uh, there was nothing that to me, that would be unusual Is uh, a, as a you know, kid growing up. But well, what
1: about that statement about not wanting to... that it was somebody's opinion that he didn't want to be given away
3: well, like his... Well, you know, I, I guess that the Jackie, uh, Jackie Peterson had a, a, a number of children out of wedlock, and uh, some of those children, two of those children, at least, were put up for adoption. And that perhaps, uh, you know, if Scott failed, he may be put up for adoption, too. I guess that's the, mm. the premise that some people... Uh, think is the case Um, you know you're the psychiatrist you would know more about those sort of things than I would I'm just an average guy who sat on a jury and had a decision to make I I don't I, I can't crawl inside the mind of Scott Pearson I can only judge based on what the relevant information that was you know, communicated to me in the courtroom in the, in, the, in the form of testimony and evidence.
1: And, Frank, did you have any more information about that? Like, was, did he ever feel that he was... was he ever replaced? Like, did any of these children come after he did, the step-siblings no. or these other children?
7: No, no, he... Uh, you know, I mean, uh, you, you know, this guy's a mama's boy. I mean, to me, clearly he was a mama's boy. He, You know, he... <clears throat> when he moved up to Modesto his parents got him a a membership in the golf club. They put they put money down for his uh for his uh uh his home. I mean, this guy was on his way to becoming a failure as a salesman for the the fertilizer company that he was working for. He didn't make any money for them. Um he his bills were he, you know, he was in debt but paying his his you know, his minimums. But the guy was a loser. Yeah. I hate to tell you that. The guy was a loser. He never he never bottomed out. He didn't, he's one of those guys who say, you know, he, you, you're not re, he couldn't take responsibility for his life. And then his wife gets pregnant. And it's, it's like, you know, you spin in, in the dial, in revolving in uh it's like Russian roulette. Mm-hmm. She had one ovary. She had difficulty having a kid. Um, whatever fertilizing or fertilization issues were, were taking place. He didn't want that. And he thought he would get away with it. And unfortunately, she got pregnant. You know, maybe the one in the million. And, and, and he, was, he was overheard. Wasn't it he said
3: to Rose, his sister-in-law, that he was, when she congratulated him, that he said something like, I was hoping more for
7: infertility? You know, when, when, he, when, when that was said, and, and it was said in the courtroom, when she testified, there was a gasp and a hush that came over the courtroom. Mm. That was a moment that really impacted everybody in that courtroom. What an insensitive thing to say. And also, and uh, Mike, I'm sure you realize the woman's eight eight and a half months pregnant, and he goes fishing on Christmas Eve. Now, anybody who's sensitive to the, to, to 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 you know to to a wife, the last thing you want to do is leave your wife and run off to go fishing yes. in a critical period. You know, the water could break. Yeah this is this is a you know
3: well, yeah. but he had he had in-laws in the area that he could rely on he had neighbors but the, the I think the the thing is is that you know that but
1: why itself... would you want to to um rely on why wouldn't you want to be with your wife on, on Christmas Eve or your pregnant wife. I mean, that would well, seem to be a time, a poignant means... time that you would, you know, you're, it's like a special time. You're you're expecting, you're almost about to have a baby and and you'd want to be together. I remember, Frank, when you called me up for a quote for people, it was about that. I yeah. mean, I had just heard about the Christmas Eve um, information and that was sort of a tip-off to me. That was the first thing that made me think he was guilty.
3: Yeah. Well, that in itself, though... Um...
1: Well, in itself it might not have been enough to convict yeah. him, but it was certainly enough to be suspicious.
3: It, as to... it, certainly, it certainly makes him what Mr. Garragos says he was, as a heel.
1: Uh huh.
3: Okay, that in itself, I think, does it, and uh, you know, I'll have to, I'll have to defend that act. But there's <laughs> so much more to this, right? And if everybody just gets hung up on that, right. Believe me, Scott would be have been an innocent uh-huh. man.
1: Absolutely. Well, we need to take another break, and when we come back, we'll talk more. We're talking about American justice. We're talking about the new book, We the Jury, with my guest, Mike Bumisieri, juror number four, and co-author Frank Swartlow. So stay tuned.
4: The Authority and in Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Live in the Green Life with Kim Carlson, ecopreneur, author, and green living maven brings you an upbeat, fun exploration of the doables of living a more earth-friendly life. Kim cuts through the noise and urban myth of green do's and don'ts, and shows that it is possible to live green easily. From hip organic weddings to exotic eco travel to healthy personal care products, get the most current trends and tips from the experts for living a more planet friendly and human lifestyle. Living the green life with Kim Carlson, broadcast each Thursday at noon Pacific, 3 p.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Living the green life for a human, healthy and planet friendly lifestyle.
5: What does it take to get your business online? How do you leverage the Internet to attract more clients, expand your network, and make more money? What are the tools you need to master? It's not enough to know the tools. You need to build a solid foundation and actually implement systems that automate your business as much as possible. On Blogging and Beyond with Denise Wakeman and Patsy Krakoff, the Blog Squad, learn about new tools that are easy and essential to use in order to grow your business online. Get strategies, tactics, and tips that Work If you implement them, Denise and Patsy interview internet marketing experts, plus coach a client in real time through the steps designed to market a real product or service. Blogging and Beyond with Denise Wakeman and Patsy Krakoff broadcasts each Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific, 11 a.m. Eastern on the Voice America channel. Blogging and Beyond, leverage the internet to attract, sell, and profit online.
0: At least 90% of sports success requires mental strength. And the greater the competitive level, the more critical it becomes to build that mental muscle. Tune into Championship Thinking every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time. Your host, Jim Meyer, sports psychology coach, consultant, and author, offers practical, powerful, and positive mental game tools, tips, and techniques. Learn how to remain confident and focused at crunch time when pressure, tension, and anxiety like to make an uninvited appearance. Tune in and tune up your mental game with Championship Thinking every Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time right here on America's Voice, Voice America.
4: The powerhouse of Internet Talk Radio, VoiceAmerica.com
6: Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist, host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. You would think that my guests, uh, co-author Frank Swertlow and juror number four, Mike Bellmacieri, the uh, uh, both involved in the new book, We the Jury. You would think that they would have talked out the uh, Scott Peterson case enough, but they can't stop talking in between the breaks. It is uh, well, Frank. Why don't you Why don't you uh, talk about what you were just saying in regard to the impact of this case on America? Well, I, you know, I, the,
7: over and over again. This has been two years since he's been uh, he was convicted. Um, maybe another week or two past that. But look, you know, this this trial, this murder affected every, so many people in this country. It hit the core of what America is about, which is family, home, husband, wife, and baby. And America fell in love with a with a picture of the smiling missing persons poster of Lacey. she had a smile in two photographs and she one of them was like madonna guess she was holding her hands around her baby and she was smiling the other was another smile and america fell in love with that and you had the villainous icy cold snidely whiplash like husband who also personified, personified evil in the minds of many people but they were the american dream they were a good looking couple they lived in in a, in a starter home. they were having a baby. it's all about what America's about and suddenly it's all thrown out. she's missing and then they find out one he's cheating on her, two, he probably did it, and that sort of unsettles people because you know people can relate to them. you can't relate to Paris Hilton I mean she's like a you know a little little you know hostess Twinkie, <laughs> but you can't relate to these people because they're the people next door, and all of a sudden you find out the people next door was supposed to be the american dream have turned into the american nightmare and what this book does and i think what the what the jurors really what they did was pull back the curtains they looked in and they saw the evil that lurked inside
1: yes and that was i'm sure disconcerting talking about you know another impact is um, the fact that that so many women even though scott was evil and did this evil thing or was thought to until he was you know uh... convicted and known to um, He was he was the quintessential bad boy, and so many women um, were falling in love with him despite his being an accused killer. And even now, apparently, he gets um, bucket loads of of letters and cards from women with marriage proposals. Now, I understand that there was one of the women jurors who was is uh, writing to him after the after the trial. I think it's what. What's up with that? Well,
7: go ahead, Frank. I, you know, I think that she felt that she, she's denied any uh, emotional links to him. I think she, she wanted to try to get him to confess. But you see, it's interesting because she thought she was manipulating him, but the reality is he was manipulating her to get information so that he could find or, or help him in his appeals. He mm-hmm. wanted to, you know. So it's like he's he's playing her, and the guy's a master of that. You know, and, and the, the female jurors, he only wanted to be interviewed by women, Diane Sawyer uh Gloria Gomez I mean he liked the cuz he felt he could twist them mm-hmm. I mean I think and I think you pointed out I think the thing that he annoyed him the most is he didn't get a chance to go on on the stand to try to manipulate the female jurors. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
3: you, you you hit it right on the head, Frank. Uh, in my discussions with Rochelle and asking her, well, you know, why did you write those letters? That's exactly what she wanted to do, was she wanted to get him confessed.
1: Okay, Rochelle, but I don't understand something. If she went through this process and she was part of a jury who had the courage to convict him, um, to find him guilty how could she still have not known him well enough to know that he wouldn't fall for, he would not never confess
3: to her? Well, understand it. Rochelle went through a, a lot of emotions and post-traumatic stress after the trial. She went to a therapist. The therapist suggested that Rochelle write a letter, and then not mail it. Rochelle is not the kind of person that's going to do something and not carry it out. Mm. She felt compelled to say, Hey, Scott, yes, we know you did it. Most of the people in America now realize and accept the fact that you're guilty. You need to make a confession of this, because I'm tired of people coming up and telling me that I sent a guilty man to San Quentin, who was awaiting execution. You mean an innocent man. I'm sorry, an innocent man. Uh-huh. You know, you're guilty. You're a guilty man. And and, and and you need to admit it. You need to come clean. And and in my discussions Rochelle, with Rochelle regarding that specific issue, that is what I came away with. And, you know, I mean, we all do
7: things for our own independent reasons. This was hers.
3: Mm-hmm. You know,
7: it, one the one thing about women is, you know, I think it's sort of humorous, you know, that people, women are, you know, throwing him, uh, you know, wedding marriage invitations, stuff like that. I mean, if you're, if women who are looking for emotionally unavailable guys, Scott's the one. <laughs> he, a, he ain't getting out of jail, and except maybe in a box. And, yet, and I think the other is, you know, you can't hug a sphinx. The sphinx doesn't cry. The sphinx uh-huh. is cold stone. Or as Mr. Deragos like to say, stone cold, innocent, nah. The jurors came back with stone cold guilty.
1: Uh-huh. Now, what, um, Mike, let me read a quote from you that's in the book. Um, I do not feel there will be any closure for me until there is a ruling from the appellate court in which the jury's verdict and penalty are held to be the just and appropriate punishment. So, how has the trial continued to affect you? I mean, do you think you're suffering from well, post-traumatic stress?
3: You know, I, I, carry, I carry what I carry, and I deal with it. Uh, is it called post-traumatic stress? I guess it might be. You know, I'm continually reminded of the trial. Every day I drive across the bay, I'm continually reminded that part of Lacey Peterson still rests in the bay. So I live with it. I live with people coming up asking me, do you really think he's guilty? You know, to question my integrity regarding such a such a monumental decision mm-hmm. is, is is certainly not something I like to carry. But will I rest until it, it's over? It's not over until it's over, and it's over the day the appellate court says he's guilty because that sentence. I, I I mean. As long as it's not anything, if it's reversed, and I—I I, I, I mean, I'm not a judge, I'm not a jury, my my experience in in, in, in law is, is minimal, but I am telling you this: if it was ever reversed because of something I did, I would take that very, very, very much to heart, and I would I would be I would be shamed. My commitment and the commitment of everybody on that jury was. Give Scott Peterson a fair trial because to do anything less than that would not be fair to the memory of Lacey and Connor and certainly not Scott and his family or anyone else bringing scott bringing Scott to justice is what we wanted to do, be it you know what everybody thinks we did that doesn't care. I know that we went in and we tried an innocent man at the time it started and we ended up with having tried a guilty man at the end
7: of the trial
1: and was there anything i know that you said before i think frank you were saying that it wasn't just one thing or, or, or um, linden was saying that it wasn't just one thing it was everything um, but for you, Mike, was there, was there one or a constellation of things that particularly sealed his
3: fate for you? If I was to point to any one specific issue that carried probably more weight than anything in connecting Scott Peterson to the murder of his wife and child, it would probably be he went fishing in an area very close to where the bodies washed up if those bodies had washed up in Lake Tahoe if those bodies had washed up on the banks of the American River if those bodies had washed up in Milpitas uh, Marin County San Francisco Scott probably would have walked hmm. but they washed up in an area very close to where he was fishing
7: you know You know the, the interesting thing about this if you think of the two things I sat sat during the deliberations and I thought well you know in the courtroom for I don't know how many days it was six I guess and I thought you know Lacey Peterson in life a mother protects her baby to the death in death Lacey Lacey protected her baby inside her womb because the only thing aside from you know her rib cage and, and part of her spine that was left
2: was her mm-hmm. womb, and
7: mm-hmm. inside that womb, that baby lay until he came out from the waters. So in death she protected him just as ruthlessly mm-hmm. as she would have in life. But they came back from the sea, as Mike points out, and they got the killer. Uh-huh. If it wasn't for finding the bodies, Scott would have walked away because you had you had victims. And now you have the killer
1: wow, well, it's chilling, as you say that, and uh let me say that this book is chilling too i uh I was able to so far read the beginning of it, and it I couldn't put it down. But I did have to do the show, so I had to put it down, but I'm going back to it i really uh you know again if you if you people think that you um know about the trial there's this is there's just so much more to it and it's really fascinating and yes um since you are going to be likely to to be called to jury duty at some time it's really interesting to uh to find out what goes on it's not what's in the movies and uh and it's also it is heartening to know that all of these people the the 12 jurors the alternates um well, at least he took this so seriously. I mean, at least the final jurors took this so seriously and, and, and really did a courageous job. So my hat's off to you, and my hat's off to you, Frank, for covering this so uh, incredibly well that you won an award for it. And um, I, I, if you'd be able to get the book, uh, We the Jury, at wherever books are sold, there's no specific website except that you can go to Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com and, and the usual places to get it. So thank you very much, Frank Swertlow, an award-winning journalist, and Mike Belmisieri, juror number four. Thank you both for joining me on Dr. Carol's Couch. Very thank you.
3: Meals.
1: And thank you all for listening. This has been Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host. The book's title again is We the Jury. The co-authors are Frank Swertlow and Lyndon Stambler, and written by seven uh, jurors as well, including um, my guest, Mike Melby. Del Messieri. So uh, I really would highly recommend it to you. Very interesting. Very courageous. So thank you again and stay tuned. Uh, Tune in next week when another edition of Dr. Carol's Couch will be on the air on VoiceAmerica.com.